Welcome to the Animation Industry Podcast. My name is Terry, and once my best friend and I made a life-sized paper mache unicorn named Sugar Pants, who unfortunately died a tragic death by bonfire. Today's chat is with Mexican writer, voice actor, producer, animator, director, and taco enthusiast who probably went and had some tacos after this chat, Jorge Gutierrez. Jorge is most well known for directing the feature film The Book of Life, as well as creating Nickelodeon's El Tigre, The Adventures of Manny Rivera. In our chat, he's going to share the exact path he took from college to gain enough credibility to become a director and how he made the book of life happen when no studio wanted to touch it. But first, this episode is sponsored by the awesome team at startastudio.com. Startastudio is a new online school focused on the business side of animation. They have both free and paid courses, an online community, and downloads to help you succeed in your animation career and build your own cool, creative, and viable animation studio. You can use the unique discount code AIP, as in Animation Industry Podcast, in their checkout to save 20% on their popular Pro Studio startup course. So whether you're looking to up your freelance game or plan and launch your own animation company, check out startastudio.com. Now let's jump into the chat. So hi, Jorge. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. How are you? Terry, thank you so much for having me. I'm super honored. Uh, this is great. I, I looked at your insane list of uh, how many people you had, and it's, it's pretty remarkable. So of course I have to do this. Well, I'm going to, well, thank you so much. I'm really excited, but I'm just going to interview everybody forever until I know everybody. So uh, somebody commented yesterday that I can't wait for episode 1000. I was like, all right, see you in 2041. <laughs> I mean, my favorite thing is, you know, you just told me this, this story, but how you just dove in fearlessly into, into podcasting and interviewing people. And, you know, a lot of us in animation, we want to share our stories because it was really hard for us, you know, especially my generation, there was no information, literally nothing. So I, 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 what you're doing, I think, is such a noble endeavor. So bless well, you. Thank you so much. That means a lot. And that's exactly what I want to do with this podcast. I kind of want to share, you know, how people in animation, in the animation world, got to where they are and what they went through and the, the story that uh, made them who they are. So, you know, you started off in Mexico City, and I listened to your, your TED Talk uh, recently and I, I learned you know how you made the move over the border and went to school in the US and all that stuff so you went to you started off in Mexico you went to Cal Arts then you started working in TV and film and you know feature films and this whole time you had this dream to share you know your culture through your art and your storytelling your animation and you kept hitting you know walls and and you had to keep convincing people what kept you going so strong what's the secret sauce inside of you that really made you persevere with this dream because I should just stop talking. I'll let you talk. <laughs> well, you know, I, I, being from Mexico uh, and being right next to the U.S., as you guys know, in Canada, the U.S. is such a powerhouse uh, of entertainment and, of you know, film history and animation and all these things that have happened. And the fact that Canada and Mexico can, can survive culturally uh, is a big deal. Right, we have we have a very shiny giant thing next to us. So that's how I feel about Mexican culture. It's the brighter the U.S. is, the more I'm protective, and and I want to showcase what's happening in Mexico. So that's been my giant inspiration as someone who who grew up loving American movies and American cartoons. I wanted to now give give the U.S. something back that looks different than what they sent to the world. So that that's been my motivation as an artist. Uh, but also, frankly, not seeing people that look like me in movies and cartoons uh, was, was really sort of a, a big deal as a kid growing up. Not, you know, I, I could identify and I could, I, could, I could live through these stories of mostly male white heroes. Uh, but whenever there was a brown character or a Hispanic character, or Latino character, I would immediately like perk up and, and, and get really extra excited because it meant someone like me could be in those worlds. And especially in sci-fi, there weren't a lot of Latin people. So it, it, it always subconsciously bummed me out because it made me feel like, well, I guess we didn't make it. And then in fantasy, again, the stories that were told weren't, were, weren't looking down to South America that much. And when they were, the Latino characters were always the bad guys or the villains or the sexy uh, love interests. Like they were never the leads. And, and they were never 
they were never, they never looked like people like me. So that's, that was a thing that I wanted to sort of do for the next generation, especially as a, as a father, right? I want to, I want to, I want to give something back to the next generation and go, see, we can all be heroes. It's not about where you're born. It's not about where, what the skin of your color is. It, it's, it's about what you do, but you can come from anywhere. And that's basically my story, right? Uh, so I, I, I go into the U.S. and I'm immediately told right from the bat, because uh, I showed up to CalArts trying to get in with, with drawings that I thought Americans wanted to see. So I drew, you know, Bugs Bunny and Bart Simpson, everything, everything from Mickey Mouse, all these awful uh, animation drawings. And uh, the teacher, who's not American, he was Hungarian, Jules Engel, he was reviewing the portfolios and he looked at my stuff and he just tore me a new one. I was 17 when he, when he reviewed my stuff. Uh, and I had also brought, aside from American drawings, I had bought, brought Mexican paintings that I've done because I wanted to see if I could get into any of the painting schools because I already loved storytelling and I loved painting and I loved movies, but I, I, I honestly didn't think someone like me could do those things. He saw my paintings and he said, this, this is you. Why did you paint these? And I told him, well, because, because I wanted to. And he started laughing and he said, that's your voice. That's your voice. And tell me about each of these paintings. So then I would tell him a story behind each one, right? Not, not why I painted it, but what was in the painting. And he got really excited and he said, these are, these are short films. Make these move and you will do something I've never seen. So I'm letting you into the school, but you can never draw that crappy uh, stuff you think we want to see. I want you to do this stuff. So wait, and he was, let you in right on the spot right there? On the spot at 17, based on my paintings and my awful American wannabe drawings. <laughs> and it was a, you know, for a 17 year old, it was like, Zeus had marked me like you are this is your journey it was it was it was kind of life changing and life shattering at the same time I went home I told my father you know went back to Mexico told my father the story and he was he wasn't that happy he was kind of appalled like what how what if you do this Mexican stuff how are you gonna get work that was his first reaction and sure enough, I, you know, killed myself in school. I worked super hard because I learned, you know, lesson number one in, in, in our industry. You can talk about it or you can do it. <laughs> and sure enough, there's a lot of people who talked about, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do this and I'm going to do this. And then others who just put their head down and just worked. And so I worked hard, like the harder, the hardest I've ever worked in my whole life. I thought it was going to be school. It turned out it was much later. It was much harder. But at least in school, uh, I learned that working really hard, it comes back to you. And, and honestly, it comes back to you tenfold. So I worked super, super hard. Uh, and all my stuff looked, you know, Mexican wrestlers and Day of the Dead and all this crazy Mexican stuff. And a lot of my teachers who were very, 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 they were saying this for the right reasons. They, I don't think they were being racist or in any way. But they would say, Jorge, if you keep making this stuff, you're not going to find work because no one's making this stuff. So if all the restaurants want, you know, Chinese food and you show up with this type of food, they're not going to let you cook there. As, as one teacher explained it to me. Right. And he was Chinese. Uh, so it was, it was an interesting thing when I would put out my portfolio and I would get reviewed and, you know, CalArts, all these companies and studios come and they send artists and art directors and directors and they review your work. And I would get called back and they would look at my stuff and they'd go, this is great. Where's your other stuff? And I'm like, what do you mean my other stuff? You know, your, your non-Mexican stuff. And I was like, no, this is it. And so I would get a lot of like, oh, well, then you're, as one recruiter put it, well, then we don't know if we put you in you know, this show or this movie, if you're going to be compatible because your stuff is so specific. And I would say, no, 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 I, I can do all that stuff. And then they would say, well, then show us. It's so not, then what, you had to go and make a whole different portfolio, just like I, the I mean, at, that, at that point, it was like, oh, man, do I do that? And a teacher told me, you have a choice to make. And this is a big one. You can either become versatile and show that you can do all this other stuff or you can risk it all and put it all on your own stuff. But the reward will be greater 
but the risk is humongous. Yeah. Right. So, so that's, I want to ask you about two things before we continue on, just because first of all, you're like answering questions before I can even ask them. <laughs> but isn't it crazy how that validation you got from that one professor at Cal Arts changed kind of the course of, of everything for a couple of years? Was that like defining moment? Is that stuck with you or do you keep needing to get validation to pursue, you know, uh, how you met, mentioned later, this, you know, risk you know what, niche? That's a, that's a very, I mean, I think about this all the time, but we're, when we're that young and when we're starting out, those teachers, positives and negatives become so important, right? Because when you're that young, these, these choices seem humongous. And so when someone with experience sort of looks at you and tells you a thing, you kind of read it as the law. Like you're doing the thing that I want to do. And if you're saying that, then you have to be right. And so that, that can hurt you and that can help you, right? Because he could have been having a good day or he could have had a delicious Mexican breakfast and he felt like he liked Mexico that day. Or he could have, you know, someone cut him off in traffic and it was a Mexican guy who yelled something at him and then he would have hated my portfolio. Like you never know what could have happened. So these are the, these are the little, in, I always say we all have a biopic of our life plane. These are the moments that can change you and you don't know you don't know where you're going to go. The choices will be yours. But when these things happen, for example, before that, my high school art teacher did not like uh, my work at all. She was a constant uh, negative influence in my life. But in a weird way, because she didn't like my work, she kept pushing me. And because she said, no one wants to see this Mexican stuff, it fueled my fire to do even more Mexican stuff. So I, you know, years later, I thanked her and I think she thought I was mocking her, but I was being genuine. And I was like, I genuinely think that you not supporting me helped me because it, it was a, a good step and a good lesson that you have to overcome those who don't believe in you. And she was like, she gave me this look like, what the, <laughs> what are you like, saying? <laughs> and I was like, so though. thank you, thank you, thank you. Like you really fueled me. And, and, you know, I was a dumb, smart-ass kid, so I'm sorry if I was a pain in the ass, but thanks to you, you really fueled my fire. Uh, and so I think those little choices make a big difference. And, you know, I always say, I don't know how it is in Canada, but in Latin America, and especially uh, in Mexico, being an artist, the first, the first wall you have to climb over is your family. Because in Latin America, saying you want to be an artist is like saying you want to be a rock star or saying you want to be a Hollywood actor. It's a one in a million chance. So this is a very risky endeavor. And especially for people, you know, a lot of first generation uh, Hispanic people in the U.S., their parents are going, wait a second, I, I risked our lives to come here. We, you know, we escaped to come here. We, we did all these crazy things to come here. You're telling me with that with this opportunity of us being here, you will risk it all to become an artist? So it's tough for people of color to make that jump. And it's a really big, uh, you know, cause you can't point and go, well, look at all those directors and look at all those art directors and look at all these successful people of color in animation. Uh, cause at least 10 years ago, there was none. So there wasn't even like, you couldn't even point at people. Uh, so it, it, it was an interesting thing that early on to deal with those things. But I think you're absolutely right. Those early teachers in college and you know, your later years in high school and, and when you're starting out in the industry, these entities that have experience can do a lot of good, but they can also do a lot of damage if they instill bad advice. And I was bombarded with good advice and bad advice. And I, you know, it's up to us to decipher which one works for you. So now, you know, you, you're an accomplished in your career and you have quite a number of projects under your belt and you found kind of what you want to do with your creative self. How do you take kind of that, those negative and positive influences now when somebody gives you validation or kind of takes it away versus you know how important it was to you when you first started? So it's been very interesting. I'm 46 years old. Uh, I was diagnosed with uh, autism when I was 40. And I didn't know. I literally did not know. Uh, we have a, a, a son, an 11-year-old, who was diagnosed when he was two and a half. And part of the reason I got tested was a lot of my 
family, especially my parents would say, hey, the way your son is acting, that's how you were as a kid. And so it was very, very interesting. Uh, and over time, you know, after I got diagnosed, one of the things you do is you basically look back into your life and you start deciphering all these things. And one of the things that I was able to do, and everybody who's on the spectrum is different. And obviously there's a billion uh, versions of, of being on the spectrum, but in my version of it, I, I have an ability to be able to, uh, you know, when people say, don't take it personally, I can literally not take it personally. I can shut off and move away and decipher the car crash of, of failure and examine and go, oh, if I could have done this and this and this and this, maybe it would have gone better. Oh, that person just insulted me. You know what? It's probably because of this and this and this. And it's probably insecurity on their part. Oh, wow, this one actually hurts, hurts. Huh, they probably hit on something that I'm insecure about and it's this and this and this. So I can decipher those things. It's kind of my, my gift. Uh, and I, by the way, I apply all that to animation, right? Because I can, I can get into who the characters are and the psychology and the subtext and what every line means, but what every line is saying, what every movement means. So it's really helped me, but that's been something that uh, over the years has uh, definitely been intriguing with the internet because man, uh, when El Tigre, my first TV show came out with my wife, uh, we got bombarded with hate right? This is 2006, 2007. The internet still wasn't as, as vocal as it is now, but we were getting a lot of hate mail, right? Uh, I don't want to see a show about uh, Mike Gardner. Uh, this show belongs to them, not to us. Like we were getting a lot of racist stuff. And Nickelodeon, you know, bless their hearts, they would give us all the fan mail. And I would say half of the fan mail was, we love this show. And the other half of the, hand, the fan mail was, I hate I hate you. I hate the people who make this show. This is garbage. Uh, and they would just give it to us. Uh, my wife, who is also an artist, it really affected her, the negative stuff. I love reading the negative stuff. And I would try to learn. I would try to go like, well, this person hates it. Well, they're just racist. I can't change their mind. Oh, this person hates for, for you know, a reason that seems more logical. Huh, there's something to be learned from this. So I would pin them on the wall. And this happened in Book of Life. Uh, when we did the test screenings, I would take all the angriest, meanest, most condescending comments, and I would put them on the wall just to study them. I was like, here's what people loved. Here's what people didn't like. How do I figure out, how do I milk the cow of negativity into something positive? How do I use all those criticisms to become a better filmmaker and become a better storyteller, right? Uh, my grandfather would always say, the best vengeance is being better, right? Yeah. So use that everything, use everything to make yourself better, good there, and bad. Is there one that sticks out to you that, you know, you had a hard time deciphering and then you really learned something from it that you took forward to the next project you worked on? Yeah, I mean, one of the, one of the things that I, uh, one of the criticisms that, that I got on, for example, on Book of Life was that there was just too much stuff happening in the, in the movie, right? Too many stories, too many B, B stories, too many characters, visually too busy, uh, musically, there was just too many things going on. And I generally was like, well, this is my personal taste, right? I like, I like that, I like Baroque art and I like Churubuskuru, uh, over the top things. I like, you know, I grew up with Mexican soap operas. I like, drama and comedy going next to each other. And, you know, I've become friends with film critics who, who didn't like the Book of Life or wrote negative reviews for the Book of Life because I literally looked for them and I was like, hey man, I'd love to learn. I'd love to just tell me, and a lot of them were like freaked out by this, by the way, because they're, they, they're not usually <laughs> talking to, to the directors of the movies. And, and one of them that I talked to uh, sort of told me, and he, you know, he didn't back down. He said, I, you know, now that we're friends, when I saw that movie, I expected this because I'm used to that. And yours was different enough that it was a knee-jerk reaction to go, well, that's not what I'm used to. And I'm not sure I feel comfortable. So that, that became a big thing for me going, audience expectation is one thing, but at the same time, 
how do I make something completely different, but familiar enough that you're not going to freak out? So that's the new balance that I'm trying to, that I'm trying to go Man, with. That's tough, especially because yeah. like, how do you, how do you figure out what's in the minds of millions of people you've never talked to kind of thing, right? Well, and, and you got to have your finger on the pulse. So one of the, you know, one of the things I do now, uh, my, and my wife always laughs about it is I'll go see the number one movie in America or the one or the number one movie in the world, even have zero interest. I just want to see what did the whole world connect to here? And what if the whole world connect to that relates to something that I might be developing that I could go, hey, my thing is, is just enough like that thing that it can get made. And I do that with the Grammys. Where I watch the Grammys every year. And obviously, as I get older, I'm like, what is this stuff? <laughs> but I just, I have to know what, what is the world connecting to? What are different generations connecting to? As an artist and as a maker of, of things that I want, the world to connect with, how can I not? How can I not study what's happening in the world on a on a on a consumer of art level? It's yeah. super important. So I like I'll look at Netflix and I go, okay, what are the top ten shows? What the hell's Coco Melon? Uh, and so I'll, I'll watch an episode <laughs> of Coco Melon and I'll, I'll go, all right, well I guess you know this is the biggest babysitter in the world right now. Uh, Isn't it crazy? I've never seen it, but I already, I already know about it because of just hearing the word Coco Melon, and it's like. I, how does this become in like the human world consciousness? I actually really like what you're saying right now, because I was going to ask you, you know, you had a really tough decision when you're approaching um, uh, studios at the start of your career at CalArts where you could be versatile or you could kind of follow this um, artistic path that you chose. And now you're doing a lot of work to in almost in a different way, make yourself kind of that thing that people want. So Take me back to, you know, when you made that decision to say, I'm going to risk it all versus versatility, because uh, also, you know, I'm faced with that all the time. I think students are faced with that in school because you want a job, you want that security. Every studio is saying, can you do this style? Can you do that style? If you want to work at a studio, you have to make their style versus at the same time, everybody wants to do their own style, their own work, their own stories. And not many people get to. And it comes down to like, how big of a risk can you take? How much you know, right? How, how much can you like delay your career? Do you have money or savings that you can you can work on these things? So, tell me about that decision and why you decided. What was the deciding factor to to follow this path? Absolutely. So, uh, my I finished my you know I did my bachelor's and my master's at CalArts. I was super lucky. I had a, a scholarship from the Mexican government and a scholarship from CalArts. So I, I basically went to school for free. So I am very privileged. I obviously, uh, I look back and I'm like, holy cow, I had no idea how lucky I was. Uh, when I graduated, I spent, and by the way, I love stop motion. Stop motion was my love. But back then, there was not a lot of stop motion going on. Uh, and the stop motion, well, was dry. This is pre-Leica. Like, this is, this, it, was, it was grim for stop motion back then. Um, and I... 2D was, was something I liked, but 2D animation was literally dying on the feature animation uh, scale. And CG animation was exploding, right? Toy Story had come out. All the studios were, were jumping to, to CG animation. So I forced myself to learn CG animation in school. And I did, not, I did not enjoy it at first. It took me a long time to get comfortable with it. I finished my little student short, which was supposed to originally have been in stop motion, but I did it in CG. Uh, it's called Carmelo, and you can look it up online. That uh, as, little as short. Everybody listening to this should. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that thing took me uh, three years to make. It won the Student Emmy, and I got to go to the Cannes Film Festival and show it there. I mean, it, that student short changed my life. I always say, uh, that's your presentation card. That's your first intro to the world. If your short, if your student short can win awards, you a little window opens in 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 Hollywood and in the industry. Um, at that point, I started getting, well, obviously I applied everywhere. I started getting job offers uh, because of CG to be a previs artist and to do uh, basically previs because uh, they, they liked the filmmaking and they liked my camera use. And, you know, my animation was, was it, it's not very, it, it's just enough to tell the story. Uh, and then at that time, the, the best job, you know, had, had, 
I'll tell the story, but I had a job offer to work on episode one at Lucasfilm uh, right out of school to work in the previous department. And this is, you know, before episode one came out, which we didn't know was going to not be that great. So we just assumed it could have been the greatest movie of all time. The biggest uh, hype movie in existence, basically. Yeah, the biggest hype movie of all time. Uh, and so they said, you know, we'd like to hire you. And I did all the phone call interviews. Uh, you're going to have to move to San Francisco. We'll help you get a place. Like, this thing was a done deal. Uh, and I had three months to go there. And then I remember being super sad. And it was one of those things where I, I had studied enough people's career, especially CG animation, where I realized no one from layout that I can think of has made the jump from layout to directing and writing their own movie. No one in the computer animation side has been able to create their own TV show. Like I just didn't see the logic of that. And I said, if I go into that industry and I go into that specific thing, it's not like I can work my way up at ILM. And at some point, George Lucas goes, make your own movie or make your own TV show, which is what I really, really wanted. So knowing I had three months, right, until the job started, I taught myself Flash and I was seeing all these super crappy internet cartoons popping up everywhere. And I said, well, I can make, I can make an internet cartoon. So I made my own little internet cartoon with my, my wife and my friends from, from school. I, I, I made this little thing about a Mexican wrestler who fights uh, skeleton mariachis. And you know, after spending three years making a short, I must've spent two weeks making this thing, put it up online. It got 20,000 views in one night, uh, which was a huge deal back then. It's like 2 million views today. Uh, And I had done an internship the year before at Sony Pictures on the movie Stuart Little as a character animation intern. And that, by the way, when I worked on that, I I realized I don't want to be a a visual effects animator uh, because it was very real. Everything had to, your shot had to blend in with a shot before and after. And I love story and design. And those two things have been figured out, you know, years in advance by the time animation happened. So that's when I realized I didn't want to be an animator. Uh, the people who had been my bosses there saw my internet short, forwarded it all around the studio. And Sony at that time was going to open a digital entertainment site. So I got called in and they said, we like your short. We want to buy your show. We wanted you to make 36 of these things. Uh, Good news, you get to write them, you get to direct them, you get to voice them, you get to do the music, you get to animate them. Basically, just like you did the first one, but we'll give you money to make it. Uh, And we'll sponsor your visa, which, you know, Lucas Lucas, uh, Film was willing to do too. So I, I was ecstatic and I had to sit down and go, all right, this is literally the same choice I've had before. Do I go to Lucasfilm? and work on Star Wars and make more money? Or do I take a chance and go to Sony, but I get to work on my own thing, but it's risky because it, it might not go well. Of course, I took, I took Sony and I'll, rem- I, I'll never forget the Lucasfilm recruiter basically you know, wagging her finger at me and saying, you will regret this for the rest of your life. That's how the phone call ended. <laughs> so cut to opening night, episode one. You know, I'm there with my friends and I am, I am, I'm shocked, right? I'm like, You've told everybody this is what yeah, I could have worked on. I could have worked on. As soon as Jar Jar comes out and he starts <laughs> like, woo! I was the only person in the theater cheering. Yeah! <laughs> Oh my so I went to Sony and that started my career as a creator because once a studio labels you as a creator, that's it. You're a creator. It's happened, right? Yeah. Someone spent that money and I made, you know, we were supposed to make over 30 of these. I only got to make nine because they shut down the division. But at that point I had directed and written and created a show for Sony. So immediately I had a, a manager. And the manager goes, well, now that you made something for Sony, in the eyes of Hollywood, a studio took a risk on you and it paid off. So now other studios don't look at you and go, well, you're just some dumb kid out of school. Now, oh, you're a Sony creator. 
what do you have now? So he sent, you know, they sent me to every studio and I pitched a mazillion shows and I got rejected everywhere. Uh, I pitched Book of Life early on and they were like, you're just out of school. You can't make a movie, uh, get more experience. So I kept pitching and pitching. And then people at studios would say, your stuff looks cool, but you need to work on a TV show so you can see how shows are made. So you can understand what you're pitching, how it translates to how you would actually make it. And I literally took that to heart. So I started applying to shows as a character designer or as a writer. Uh, and you know, the first thing in, in, in those, when they ask you to do those things is they go, all right, are you a writer? Let me read your samples. So I would show them samples of my scripts for the Sony thing. They're like, oh, these are too short. Show me a Simpsons sample. Show me a, a sample from a, you know, or, or, or write me a sample of the show that, I'm, that you're applying for. And that's when I got my ass kicked as a writer. Uh, and the design part, same thing. They would go, ah, cool, cool designs. Oh, you want to be a character designer? Here's the character design test. And the character design test is basically, you know, at least back then, it was turn around the character that we designed. And we're going to give you design this type of character and design this type of character, one really exciting and one really boring. And I didn't realize this, but that's the job. Like character design is maybe 20% of the job is super fun, but 80% of the job is really technical, right? Turning bodies around, construction, special poses, all this stuff. So I started getting freelance writing and, and freelance character designing while I started pitching shows and I started getting pilots. And they would say, well, we're gonna pair you up with a writer because you don't know how to write. So I learned a ton from being paired up with writers. Hey, we're gonna pair you up with a more seasoned director so you can learn how to direct a TV show. That's how I learned. And I was always like, pay them, don't pay me, give them all the money because I'm going to be learning from them. Like, what, what do you mean pay them? So you didn't take... Yeah, so for example, the, the, the writing fee, it was, hey, I want to make sure I get credit for it, but pay the full fee to the writer because I'm going to be learning from them. So you didn't, you chose... I, I chose instead of 50, instead of, you know, 50-50, which by the way, if you do that, that cuts out a lot of writers who are like, well, I don't want to co-write with some. No, oh, that makes sense. So you wanted to work with more experienced yeah. writers, directors, oh. and the way to do that was to cut out your fee. That makes a lot of sense. Um, let me just take it back a bit. So, yeah. you know, you got this offer three months in advance to work at a ILM and you had kind of the foresight to look at your career and, and to know that this wasn't the right path for you. And then you made this short. What do you, so, um, you know, tons of people are making shorts these days. What do you think you did to make that short successful uh, in the eyes of the world or to get those views or to make it stand out enough that it said, you know, Jorge is, is director material? Uh, well, if you guys look at that short, uh, it was super ambitious for that time. Uh, but the number one thing I learned after watching a bazillion CG shorts of that era was that everybody was either telling a joke or making it a demo reel. Uh, no one was telling a story, like a story story. And what I mean by that was something that made you either tear up or, or, or you know, lump in your throat, something emotional. Yeah. And I've always believed the greatest special effect in what we do is emotion. So that became my whole thing. I'm like, I want, I want to make a short that hopefully makes people feel something. So I made it about Day of the Dead. I literally made it about a kid dying. The you know, the short starts and it's it's at the funeral of a kid. And that so that's out of the way, right? We know someone died. Now the story is, well, how did he die? And the most important thing, why did he die? So that to me was I gotta figure that in story and story and story and story. And then by the time I get to the CG and by the time I get to all the other stuff, I have a guide emotionally of where this thing is going. That thing is eight minutes long. I look at that now and I go, it's too long for that era. I mean, it's too long for today. Today is, you know, now, 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 now. These things have to be so short now because there's so many eyeballs competing for you uh, that you gotta make things really, really smart, really short. Um, but it's a different time. I mean, back then, you know, I had to send it to festivals and in, in, in VHS tapes. Now you send, send a link and, and people can watch it anywhere. So the, the, the advice I give to students now with their shorts is, I wanna see who you are. I wanna see your point of view. I wanna see your personality. 
And if it's comedy, great. If it's more dramatic, great. But you got to keep it short. Because if you don't start big and, and, and hook us, people will not watch the whole thing. Which I think back then was different. Because you were stuck in a theater. And you could take your time building that, that thing up. I think it's different now. Did that apply to the short that you made in those two weeks? As yeah. Well, the Literally, I was like, this is for the internet. I got I to gotta get in there and I make it funny right away. And, and it's going to be exciting because that was the other thing. Uh, I would go to studios. I would show my you know, award-winning short and they would go, wow, this is super depressing. Uh, we are Nickelodeon and we make SpongeBob. <laughs> yeah. How do we know you're funny? And I would go like, no, no, I'm funny. And they're like, you got to <laughs> show us something funny. You can't say you're funny. And that was a big lesson. It was, you can't say, hire me to prove to you that I can do a thing. It's, here's the thing I make, hire me and I'll make a better one. Yeah, I honestly wish the world didn't work like that. Like you gotta work hard before you can get anywhere. Instead, it's like, no, I know I'm funny inside. Just trust me, believe me. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and by the way, one of the big things in our industry is there's a lot of people who, want to do stuff, have, in my opinion, have the talent to do this stuff, but aren't willing to put themselves on a limb and do it and show it to the world. And that, that little thing, that extra step to be willing to put it out there and let the world judge you, that's, you know, that's huge for artists. That's, that's, I always say you have to have the heart of a poet, right? And what we do, you have to be very sensitive and very sensible and, and, and be willing to show your nakedness to the world but then you also have to be you know have the endurance of a boxer and be able to block all the negativity and block all the insecurities and block all the attacks that are coming your way so that balance to me the, the good artists are have that balance where they can be poets and fighters together so, so let's fast forward a bit to where you kind of left off where you were talking about before, where you, you were talking about how you got into directing and how you're pitching everybody in there saying, no, what made, you know, with El Tigre or the Book of Life, what, what made people say yes suddenly? Because you said you were pitching absolutely everything forever and you're learning from great writers and directors, et cetera, but you still so, wanted to tell this unique story. All right. So uh, I, literally after my student short happened, um, a manager who I'm still with signed me and said, there's a short called Nine uh, that is gonna become a feature and Tim Burton's producing it. So any award-winning short out there uh, can be pitched as a movie. So your little short, turn that into a feature. So I wrote uh, the first outline to Book of Life. He sent me to every studio, everybody rejected it, said, you have no experience, this is too weird. Uh, you know, the quote, no one wants to see a movie about dead Mexicans. I was literally told that at Disney. Uh, many years later, Coco happens at Disney. Uh, so uh, that, you know, as I kept growing and people would go, well, how are we gonna let you direct your pilot if you've never directed a pilot? And I would go, no, no, but I directed these internet shorts. All right, we'll pair you up with a seasoned uh, director so you can learn. Hey, how are we, how, you're not gonna write this. You never written a pilot. Well, I wrote all this other stuff, pair me up. So that was my trick, right, basically. Uh, eventually, El Tigre, El Tigre happens and El Tigre, you know, this pilot, I got, uh, we had an incredible seasoned director, uh, Dave Thomas, who, who's a genius and now directing uh, Kid Cosmic on Netflix. Everybody should check it out. Um, and I learned a ton from him, but I also learned sort of the reality of production. And it's your ambition can only happen if it's producible. Because there's nothing worse than you have an idea of something and then you try to cram it into a budget and a schedule that will make it awful. Because then that's not the fault of the budget and the schedule, that's your fault. So that was the first time I learned my ambition has to be producible. And obviously I'm gonna push the envelope and try to go a little bit, you know, try to get a little bit more, but it can't be based on 40 times what I'm given. So that was a huge, huge lesson. Uh, and I realized also, as I was starting to work in the industry, there's a lot of directors who didn't care about that stuff. And there was a lot of creators who didn't care about that stuff. And they would burn their crews, they would burn their budget, they would burn their schedule. 
And if their shows were hits, the studio forgave them. And that to me was, I don't have that privilege as a minority. I can't do that. So I'm not going to burn my crew. I'm not going to, like, I'm going to, if I'm given a budget and I'm going to schedule, I'm going to make you the best thing ever. Like LT grade literally was, you give me that budget and I will make you, especially at that time, the best looking flash show ever made. And we went all in. I mean, it was insane. After that, you start getting a reputation because that's the other thing, right? Studios start going, wow, that creator is really responsible. That creator, uh, their crews love them. Wow, that creator uh, plays well with the network. El Tigre won seven Emmys. It, it got canceled after one season. But because of the hopeful, hopefully positive reputation I, I had after that and all those awards, all the studios go, huh? That guy, there might be something else in there. That didn't work, but he more than earned the right to get another shot. So I started doing all, all these other pilots. DreamWorks called me in and said, hey, we want to make a Day of the Dead movie. Do you know, uh, do you know anyone who wants to make one? And I was like, <laughs> I pitched to you guys literally you know, seven years ago. Like, we're talking <laughs> yeah. to you right now. <laughs> and, and so I, I took the exact outlines, you know, a 40 page outline. I ripped off the first page, printed out a new page with a new date, the same outline that they had said it was amateurish and, and macabre and just too weird. Seven Emmys later, they read the same exact outline and they go, this is so original and unique. Were they and, surprised and, at how fast you turned it out? <laughs> they definitely were. Uh, and of course, of course, that was a huge lesson, right? It's who it's coming from, especially at, at that stage, is almost more important than what the thing is. Yeah. Right? So I went to DreamWorks and they were like, well, you've never written a movie. So we're going to give you a feature writer. And again, I was like, let me write it with my writing partner from El Tigre and pay us the Writers Guild minimum. And if you guys hate it, fire me and get a big name feature writer. And they were like, really? I'm like, yeah, I'll be the first one to go. All right, let's, let's get some fancy name. And we, we, uh, we didn't get that far. <laughs> At some point they wanted to change the movie so much that I quit. Um, and you know, it, it was a huge deal to walk away. And it was one of those moments where you go, all right, in order for my movie to go forward, and back then it was going to be a $160 million movie. Uh, they wanted it. They wanted a lot of changes that I wasn't prepared to make at that time. Uh, they wanted it to not take place in Mexico. They didn't want bullfighting in it. Uh, they wanted it to be a hip hop uh, musical with Lin-Manuel Miranda. I mean, this is pre Hamilton, pre any of that stuff. So I didn't, I honestly didn't see that movie in my head. And I kept saying to them, look, if you guys want to make that, that's great. I'll go see that. But I'm not, I'm not gonna make that. That's not my movie. So I quit and they were they were shocked <laughs> that I walked away. Uh, but Jeffrey Katzenberg was super cool. He let me keep my rights. Uh, and so after after time went by, my wife got pregnant. We had two more pilots, one at Nickelodeon, one at Disney, didn't go. I don't know where this little studio in Dallas came out uh, called Real Effects. And they said, hey, we don't have $160 million but we have $25 million and we think you can make this movie for 50. So if you come uh, with us and you help us find the other 25. So they, we'll they reached out to you? Yeah, they reached out to me. They said, uh, uh, when I was an intern at Sony, uh, one of the animators, Brad Booker, went on to become a development uh, producer at Real Effects. And by the way, he became the producer of the movie. So those, those connections early on, all paid off. So Brad Booker says, come to Dallas. We've never made a movie. You've never made a movie. You believe in us, we'll believe in you. We'll let you write it and we'll let you direct it. So I found it incredibly ironic that I had left Mexico to make stuff about Mexico. And now I was having to leave Hollywood to make a Hollywood movie. <laughs> <laughs> so we, we had that choice, right? The stuff we talk about all the time. 
we had a choice. Do we stay in Hollywood and I just keep grinding at the Hollywood system to try to get something made? But the way my movie is supposed to be made, it will not happen in Hollywood. Or do I throw caution to the wind? And we had a two-year-old at that point. And we moved to Dallas. We'd never even been to Texas. And we go to a studio that's never made a movie. And we try to get our movie made there. And we try to find $25 million. And we try to find a big name producer like Guillermo del Toro. And again, it was just like that choice in school. Do I bet on the safe bet? Or do I bet on me? That's crazy. Um, first of all, I'm just curious, how did you get, uh, you know, you only had $25 million. How did you confirm that extra $25 million? I'm assuming you reached out to every producer in the book. Well, we go over there. Uh, we, they gave me a year to write the script and do a, a lot of visual development. We put together a, a presentation package to woo a big name director. I mean, a, a big name producer. So of course, Guillermo del Toro was my number one choice. It was super hard to, to get a meeting with him. He, uh, he fell in love, he fell in love with the movie. And he, it was one of those, uh, you know, dream, honestly dreams come true. As a kid, I've had, you know, it was like meeting Santa Claus and Santa Claus basically said, go to the toys, toy shop and pick whatever you want. Uh, <laughs> Guillermo, having Guillermo by my side as a producer and as a collaborator and you know, eventually as a friend was incredible. And then going to pitches with him, because after he became attached to the producer, then we would pitch the movie to other studios. And seeing studios laugh and fall in love with the movie, but then say pass, was another huge lesson. Because I thought in my head, I was like, if they're, they're telling Guillermo no, they're telling this you know, larger than life presence in cinema no, how can I take that stuff personal if he's not taking it personal? Yeah. And he would say, when they, when they tell you no, make sure it's for the right reason. And what that meant was there were studios that would go, look, in order for us to make this movie, we're going to have to make it so commercial that you guys are going to be unhappy. So we'd rather not do that because we'd rather keep a good relationship with you. So eventually we pitched to Fox and Fox at that time was uh, wooing Guillermo for our other projects. And the head of Fox was, was, was very friendly. Um, and they said, we'll do it. We'll, you know, as long as Guillermo is, is, is mentoring Jorge, we will, we will throw in the other $25 million and we will handle marketing and distribution and blah, 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 blah. blah. And that's, that's where the other 25 came from. Nice. So it's crazy. It was like, you know, it was like winning a game with 17 Hail Marys in a row. <laughs> that's what making Book of Life felt like. I, I like what you said about, you know, studios saying no for the wrong reason, too. I've been pitching myself and when they say no, that's like my biggest follow up question is what were the reasons why? And sometimes it just doesn't work out. And sometimes it's like, oh, I'm really missing this element from what I'm pitching. But OK, so um, I want to ask you about, you know, you are you have you reached your dream as a director? But first, you've been through a lot of ups and downs and tough decisions and people pulling you in different directions and even having to quit. Uh, a dream job potentially, what, what is that thing that keeps you on the path to become what you are and what you do that, does, that keeps your head above water and say, this is, this is how I make this decision for the right reason? Uh, you know, it, it was the way, it's not super cheesy, but it was the way I was raised. It was, uh, it was one of these things that was instilled in me. Uh, I have a grandfather who, who did a lot of amazing things and as a kid, he sat me, this is a story I, I tell all the time. He sat me down when I was six years old and he, uh, he had two shots of tequila. I obviously never uh -oh. had tequila. <laughs> and he said, Jorge, it's time for you to learn the meaning of life. Uh, and I was like, oh, this, this, you know, this is it. Uh, and he said, Jorge, in life, there's two types of Mexican men. They're the machos and they're the super machos. And I was like, oh. Mexican Zen, what is this? And what a grandfather, what is the difference? And he said, uh, the macho, the macho men, they get in fights. They live life to the extreme. They do terrible things. The super macho men, they control themselves. They know when to say no. They know when to take risks. 
And when there's a path in front of them, they know how to get through. I was like, what? He goes, yeah, yeah, let me tell you more. The macho men, they cheat on their wives. They cheat on their girlfriends. They even cheat on their mistresses. I was six, right, when he's telling me this. Uh, I'm like, what? And he's like, the super macho men, they're loyal forever. True love is theirs. So I was like, grandfather, are, are, you, are you super macho? And he said, no. <laughs> and he grabbed the two tequila shots and he drank both of them. <laughs> and he said, but you, Jorge, you can be super macho. Being super macho is not a destination. Being super macho is a state of mind. So in life, when you get those moments, when the journey tells you, if I go this way, it'll be easier. But if I go this way, it'll be harder. Things, you always pick the one that will make you better. And the one that will make you better is always gonna be the harder one. And if it doesn't work, no regrets. Success, Man, I feel like right? I'm getting emotional here. This was a this is a great retelling. Yeah. <laughs> Success is built on the ladder of failure. The more you try, the better you get. But the more you try, it means the more you fail. So failure is the way to success. And that was it, right? It was fucking tattooed on my soul, my my six-year-old mustache grew out at that moment. It was like I was illuminated. And I followed that, that mantra my whole life. And it's, all right, what's the, what's the logical choice? And what's the risky choice? And how, obviously, have a plan B and plan C. And how much money you have will, will determine a lot of these choices. But, man, risks is where the growth happens. And risks is where the you know, where we, where we, where we win. Yeah. No one, no one who took it safe goes, Oh my God, all my dreams came true. <laughs> I mean, sometimes you win the lottery, but not yeah. in a normal, not in a normal life. I totally, I really like how you just explained that in that story that I can, I'm like taking it personally. You're a father now and you have a son. Are you uh, sitting him down with two tequila shots at some point? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I have I have that from my grandfather, and then I have another one from my dad. I have a this is where El Tigre came from. Uh, so when I was a kid, I I I, I basically got in a in a fight, and the other kid hit me with a bike's bicycle chain, and left a scar on my arm. Um, and my father, uh, you know, he was comforting me, and he said, "You know that scar." That's a, that's a tiger stripe. And I was like, what? And he's like, Jorge, look, when you're born, you're born a puma. As you get older and things happen to you, good and bad things, you get spots and you become a jaguar. Then deeper things happen to you. And then you become a tiger because they're stripes. They leave a longer mark. When you die, Jorge, I want you, I don't want you to die a cheetah or a jaguar or a, or a puma or a tiger. I want you to die a panther because you've experienced everything. And, you know, again, one of those moments where you're like, oh, experiences, good or bad, make you grow. So embrace them. And if it hurts, it's another stripe. Yeah. Wow. Um, I feel like I'm on, on a wisdom talk here with you. And this is, this is fantastic. <laughs> I love, I love how your, your father and grandfather had such, they had such a way of telling these things and they've stuck with you. Um, so I'm wondering, you know, how is being a director? Have you achieved this dream that you sought to achieve? And is it everything you wanted it to be? Uh, you know, it, it's been interesting because uh, I didn't set out to be a showrunner and I honestly did not set out to be a director. I set out to make my stuff. And the only way to make my stuff was to become a director and was to become a showrunner. So the, I guess the job position wasn't the thing that drove me. It was making the thing that drove me. 
And now all the stuff that I'm making at Netflix, it's the same thing. I want to make this. And in order to make this, I need to learn this and this and this. So that's basically what's driving me. I have friends who are a little more focused on the, on the craft position. So they're like, I'm a director. I need to option a book and I need to be paired up with a writer, but I, my, you know, my energy and my focus is on directing. Uh, and then I have other friends who go, well, I'm a creator. Here's my idea. And then I sell my idea and then someone else can make it, but I create, I'm not there yet in my head. I need to create it and I need to direct it. I need to see it all the way through. Yeah. And I see these things. Like when I pitch, you know, people joke about this stuff, but when I pitch, I go in my head, I've seen it. And I'm just telling you about the thing I've seen. And I'm, it's like with your friends where you see a movie before them and you go, Oh my God, I just saw this thing and it was about this and then this happened. And then at the end, before anybody knew it, this happened. That's how I pitch. Right. And the same thing with a TV show. Oh my God, you got to see this show. It's about this and then this, and then, Oh, this, and that, and, and that to me, you know, art of pitching is a whole different topic, but that is a, a as artists, that's what we do, right? We want to communicate and we want to communicate complex ideas and we want to communicate stories and we want to communicate uh, a little bit of us through our work. And, and so I, as a director now, I, I just feel like I'm an artist. I'm, I'm a fully realized artist. Uh, I'm completely uh, uh, you know, overweight, but I feel like my heart has a six pack. Uh, I've never been more comfortable with the craft. I've never been more comfortable uh, with the, my storytelling. Uh, I have a ton to learn. I have so much left to learn. I'm studying all the time films and, and movies and series all the time. But with the resources that I'm being given right now, man, I'm getting to make all my, literally all my dreams come true. And I, you know, 46, it, it only took, I graduated when I was 25, so it only took 20 years. <laughs> but uh, I, it, it, it's been, it's been remarkable. And I, I know how blessed and how lucky and how privileged I am to be in this position, but man, there's nothing, nothing that uh, upsets me more than when family or, or my friends who are not in the industry go, oh, you are so lucky. You're so lucky you were born, uh, you know, with, with a talent. I'm like, yeah. that's not, you just negated all the hard work. You just negated all of, you know, sleepless nights and the working on the weekends and, and, and losing, uh, you know, health sacrifices. Like this isn't just luck. It's hard work. I mean, obviously you need luck, but all the hard work, uh, is, is, is the key. I, you know, all, all the time people are like, what's the secret? I'm like, the secret is work. <laughs> there's no, there's no way around it. You know, don't be an asshole, work really hard, uh, network, make connections, study, see what's out there, uh, figure out who's doing what, uh, decipher the history of people you admire, right? So for me, it was, I was a big Henry Selick fan and I loved Brad Bird and I loved all these directors. So I would just look through the history and I would go, well, they, they didn't come out of their mother's womb and someone made them directors or showrunners. You see their journeys and you go, well, they went to school, then they got their first job, then they had their first opportunity, Oh, then they got fired then this happened and you start seeing these these ladders and these graphs and no one no one just goes like this it's like boop, 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 boop. and then there's like long things and that's where you start going obviously there's anomalies and people who just manage to avoid all those things but most of us mortals have to take those steps and have to go on those journeys so for anybody out there who's starting out study your favorite directors literally go who is out there that I want? I want what they're doing and figure out how they got there and, and, and go, am I doing something today to get there? And that's how I approached it. Yeah. I, I mean, that's a, I feel like you just summed up the reason I started this podcast to figure all that stuff yeah. out. <laughs> Terry, you're a genius. You're yeah. a genius on my way. Um, so, okay. So, you know, I, I asked you, does it, does it feel fulfilling that you're a director, but you're telling these stories that are in your mind. How, what is next for you? Like, what are the risks that you want to take? What are the things that you want to export now that you've reached this state, you know, at 46, that took you 20 years to reach? What is, 
what is what what is the meaning of life now? <laughs> so the, the meaning of life now, the, the thing, the big aha that's happened to me now is I want to do things I've never done before. Right. So I got to make my own TV show. I got to direct a movie. I got to make a virtual reality short. Uh, my and the three is the first limited series I've ever done where it's, it's a nine episode, four and a half hour movie. And then after that, you know, they haven't announced any of the other stuff, but I'm basically doing things I've never done before. Uh, I just signed a big deal to do interactive and preschool and adult. So those are all things that I've never been able to do that Netflix is allowing me to sort of go into those worlds. But the big one, honestly, the big one that's happened to me is as important as a result of what we make is, I'm now at a point in my career where I am more interested in the process. So I want to collaborate with artists and I want to make something great, but the collaboration and the process to me is now more important than the result. So instead of, for example, I'd rather make something really good and have an incredible experience and have everybody who worked on it have a great time than make something perfect and have everybody be miserable. Yeah. Right? So at, at my age, I know now that, that what matters is family and, and personal time and health and the things outside of uh, what we make. One of the biggest ironies of our industry, which I hate, is that a lot of the things we make are about families staying together or people staying together when behind the scenes we are doing the opposite and families are falling apart and relationships are being broken and people's health is being questioned and destroyed. So that's been a big new thing for me. Enabling, uh, you know, I love giving people the shot uh, from, from this to supervisor, from supervisor to lead, like basically helping people jump up because that's what happened to me. Someone helped me and the best way to pay it back is we have to pay it back is to help others, right? So that's you doing this podcast. This is, this is you're helping the industry, right? This is a great way to help people with information, with advice. Obviously, everything we say is just advice. People should make up their own minds and, and decipher what they want to take from these things. But that at, at that stage in my career, that's what I'm the most interested in. Uh, I'm also a big advocate, as you can imagine, for uh, mental health and for people who usually aren't represented to get their shot at telling their stories and people who uh, are on a journey, if, they, if there's anything I can do to help them, push them up uh, or, or extend my hand and help them up, uh, that comes, I believe in animation karma, animation industry karma. And I think the more you help others, the more good things will happen to you. Uh, it's easy to help those who uh, can help you, but I think the real super macho thing to do is to help those who can't help you, right? That's the most noble one. So, Terry, I'm gonna have to go soon. Yeah, okay, I'm so wise. <laughs> I'm, I just love picking your brain. Um, so let's, let's wrap things up. First of all, I just wanna thank you for sharing all that because that was amazing, but is there anything else you wanted to share? Uh, yeah, I mean, I'd love to end by saying, hey, everybody out there uh, in, what is it, uh, February 2021, we are in a magical time. This is a golden era. I know it's a pandemic and I know it, things 2020 was awful, but honestly, everybody, we are in a golden era of animation. There's never been more animation. There's never been more jobs there's never been more types of animation if you like anime or you like adult or you like preschool or you like interactive you like any type of animation games uh visual effects this is the boom right now it is you know the golden era and and not only that but it's the golden era in that people who usually didn't get a shot to create and direct and make these things are getting those shots so this is a wonderful time we're all home. Well, many of us are home, working from home. Take advantage of this. These are, there's no more distractions. There's no more going out. Uh, use that to your advantage. Use all this to your benefit. You can make amazing stuff. Nothing is holding you back from creating your own shows, writing your own movies, pitching your shorts. If you're working for a studio, make sure you work on your own stuff on the side if you want to be a creator. Don't don't lose this amazing, magical time we're living through. This is incredible. This is a, a once in a lifetime moment. Take advantage of it. 
Uh, so I encourage all of you, go out there. You can be macho, but I know you have it in you to be super macho. Famous last words. Well, well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate your time. And if you're listening and you want to follow Jorge or get in touch with him, you can check out his Twitter, Instagram. I'm going to include those links in the description of this podcast. And that's all for now. Thanks so much for listening. Okay, bye. The music for this podcast was composed by Will Farmer and the graphics by Daniel Abensauer. I encourage you to look them up if you enjoyed their work. Thank you.